Well, good morning. It's good to see you here today. I want to encourage you now to take your Bibles and turn to the Gospel of Luke one more time before we take a bit of a break in Luke. Lord willing, our plan, we'll see if it's the Lord's plan, but our plan is to finish the Gospel of Luke by the end of November, 1st of December, somewhere in there. But looking forward to our sermon series through the month of October on the five solas of the Reformation. That will be a good time in the Word together as well. But today our text is Luke chapter 23, verses 1 through 25. Luke chapter 23, verses 1 through 25. As you make your way there, let's prepare our hearts to hear God's Word. I'm going to begin reading. Remember, coming out of chapter 22, Jesus has been arrested. He's been gathered before the religious leaders, answering questions of their own accusations against him, and now they're moving on from their own religious trial, so to speak, to take Jesus before the Roman authorities. And so that's where we find him today in chapter 23, beginning in verse 1. Then the whole company of them arose and brought him before Pilate. And they began to accuse him, saying, We found this man misleading our nation and forbidding us to give tribute to Caesar, and saying that he himself is Christ, a king. And Pilate asked him, Are you the king of the Jews? And he answered him, You have said so. Then Pilate said to the chief priest and the crowds, I find no guilt in this man, but they were urgent, saying, he stirs up the people, teaching throughout all Judea, from Galilee even to this place. When Pilate heard this, he asked whether the man was a Galilean, and when he learned that he belonged to Herod's jurisdiction, he sent him over to Herod, who was himself in Jerusalem at that time. When Herod saw Jesus, he was very glad, for he had long desired to see him, because he had heard about him, and he was hoping to see some sign done by him. So he questioned him at some length, but he made no answer. The chief priests and the scribes stood by vehemently accusing him, and Herod with his soldiers treated him with contempt and mocked him. Then arraying him in splendid clothing, he sent him back to Pilate. And Herod and Pilate became friends with each other that very day, for before this they had been at enmity with each other. Pilate then called together the chief priests and the rulers of the peop- and the people and said to them, you brought me this man, as one who was misleading the people. And after examining him before you, behold, I did not find this man guilty of any of your charges against him. Neither did Herod, for he sent him back to us. Look, nothing deserving death has been done by him. I will therefore punish and release him. But they all cried out together, away with this man and release to us Barabbas, a man who, was, who had been thrown into prison for an insurrection, started in the city and for murder. Pilate addressed them once more, desiring to release Jesus, but they kept shouting, crucify, crucify him. A third time he said to them, why? What evil has he done? I have found in him no guilt deserving of death. I will therefore punish and release him. But they were urgent, demanding with loud cries that he should be crucified, and their voices prevailed. So Pilate decided that their demand should be granted. He released the man who had been thrown into prison for an insurrection and murder, for whom they asked, but delivered Jesus over to their will. Let's pray together. Father, we come before you now and ask for your help as we consider your word. Here in Luke's gospel, this this trial in which Jesus endured. Lord, would you give us wisdom and insight into this passage that it may 
teach us that it may provide for us everything that we need this very day. Thank you, Lord, for this word. Thank you for your presence now with us, and we pray for your help as we continue on. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Well, rejection is a terrible thing to experience. Whether it's not being selected to the team you tried out for or being passed over for another promotion at work, maybe it's the date proposal gone bad or a friendship that's been tossed aside, maybe being told you don't have the grades to be accepted into our school or program. Or maybe it's being rejected for your appearance, the color of your skin, your income level, your education level. On and on we can go. Rejection comes in various ways to all of us at some point. At some level, we all know what it's like to be rejected. Even Jesus himself wasn't immune to rejection. He experienced rejection at its ugliest and at its worst. The trial that we're watching unfold in these chapters, as Jesus is betrayed, as he's arrested, and as he stands before the religious assembly and now the Roman authorities, he is rejected. This trial is one that's rooted in rejection. He's been rejected by his own disciples, a couple of them by the religious establishment, by the crowds, and now we will see even by these political leaders. When we think about all that Jesus endured, when we look at this passage today, I think it's important, important for us to take away this, this key point concerning Jesus' own rejection. We, we face rejection for a lot of different reasons in this world, but Jesus was rejected so that we could be accepted. That's the key difference. Jesus endured rejection so that you and I could be welcomed and accepted into the kingdom of God. Here in Luke chapter 23, we're gonna walk through this, the, the first 25 verses of this chapter and as we do so, we're gonna see several observations concerning the rejection of Jesus and how it serves really to bring about redemption and hope, the plan of God in the world to rescue sinners. So I want us to walk through that in, in light of thinking through Jesus' own rejection. He's rejected so that we could be accepted and I want us to see several observations as this unfolds along the way. First thing that we come to in this passage is an affirmation of innocence. It's, it's important that we see this because we know Jesus is being rejected. He's being cast off, he's being cast aside, he's being condemned, he's being accused falsely. And he's enduring all these things, but we need to, in the midst of this, we need to see this affirmation of innocence that is here. It becomes apparent quite quickly that the chief priests, we've, we've known this for some time though, right? We, we, we know that the elders, the scribes, the chief priests, the religious leaders, the Pharisees, on and on we could go. There was a bunch of them. They have different kinds of offices, but there was a bunch of them and they were all unified on this one thing that Jesus had to go. In fact, if you were to read Matthew's account of these, these events in Matthew chapter 26, verse 59, 
we read the following. Now the chief priests and the whole council were seeking false testimony against Jesus that they might put him to death. Matthew says it quite clearly. That was their motive, that was their agenda. They were seeking to wrongly, to falsely accuse Jesus that they might put him to death. And here in Luke's gospel, we see the charges that they're bringing against Jesus. You see them in verse two. They accuse Jesus of misleading the nation, of forbidding the, the Jews to give tribute to, G, to, to Caesar, which was a big deal, and Number three, saying that he himself is Christ, a king. Now it's interesting that only that third one seems to, to catch Pilate's attention because we know that Jesus is now brought to Pilate, the governor of the region of that day. Jesus is now being brought to him because we know that the Jews couldn't just kill Jesus on their own. They, they had to get permission from the Roman authorities to put Jesus to death, to see him put away. And that's what we see taking place here. So G Jesus is brought to Pilate, the Roman governor, and they're accusing him of these things. And Pilate seems just to be fixated upon this third thing. So he asked Jesus about it. Verse three, are you the king of the Jews? He doesn't bring up Caesar. He doesn't bring up the other thing. He said, so are you king of the Jews? And Jesus responds, you have said so. Now, what we need to see here and what I think Luke's, Luke makes this point crystal clear is, is this. After Pilate questions Jesus, look what we find. Verse four, I find no guilt in this man. You've brought these charges. I, I, I don't see him guilty. I don't see any, any wrong in him. And so we know that the crowd responds to that. The religious leaders in verse five, they were urgent saying, he stirs up the people teaching throughout all Judea from Galilee even to this place. So, so their, their sense of, of, of urgency arises now and, and Pilate continues back and forth with them. You can read a longer account of this in, in John's gospel in chapter 18. So once Pilate questions him, he, he sees no guilt in him and he sends him on. He, we know that, that he's going to send him to Herod because in verse six through eight, we see Jesus says, I tell you what, he's a Galilean, or excuse me, Pilate says, Jesus, since you're a Galilean, why don't you go, why don't you take him to Herod? In fact, he falls under Herod's jurisdiction anyway, so why don't you take him there? And that's what they do. We're gonna, we're gonna see also that, that Herod comes to the same conclusion as Pilate. But the point I want us to, to not miss here is this. Luke wants us to see the innocence of Jesus. He's not guilty of the things that the religious elites have been falsely accusing him of. Jesus, what happens in this, in this from a human perspective, Jesus is a political pawn that ends up being this victim of political and religious forces that seek his demise. And therefore he's presented as this innocent sufferer. Why is that so important? It's as if Luke is shouting from these pages, from this chapter, not guilty. Jesus is not guilty of the things they're accusing him of. Why is that such a big deal? The innocence of Jesus is a big deal 
And it's being established here as important because it's absolutely foundational to the gospel. It's foundational to the good news of God saving sinners. Peter, in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 9, refers to Jesus as the lamb without blemish or spot. If Jesus was going to be a sacrifice, he needed to be a perfect sacrifice. Hebrews chapter 4, verse 15, the writer of Hebrews says, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. It's not guilty. Had Jesus been a sinner, had Jesus been guilty of some crime, he would not be a sufficient sacrifice. This was absolutely important. And how ironic it is that a pagan Roman governor is the one speaking to his innocence while it's the religious establishment accusing him of wrongdoing. Brothers and sisters, you need to understand how foundational this is to your hope. You need this to be true. What Luke is affirming here in these, in these verses about the innocence of Jesus, you and I are dependent upon his innocence. Without it, we perish. So we need to see this affirmation of innocence. It's something that is foundational to the gospel. For him to be the perfect sacrifice, for him to be the one who lives in perfect righteousness, who obeys where we did not obey. Jesus had to be innocent. He had to be perfect. We need that to be true, and it is. But not only do you see in this chapter this affirmation of innocence, I want you to see what we could call a spectacle of injustice. Really for the rest of the chapter, for the most part, we see this unfold. I think it's important for us to see the human element at play behind all that's going on here with Jesus. I mean, we could easily say God sent, and we're gonna see that, God sent Jesus into the world to die, that's true. But I want you to, to, to as we're looking at this, we, we need to understand, because there's so much of this in the gospel narrative that we need to, to un, unpack it a bit. The arrest and trial of Jesus is one of the most blatant acts of injustice ever recorded, if not the worst. And after Pilate announces that he finds no guilt, the religious leaders continue to stir the people up so that Pilate sends Jesus on to Herod. And we keep reading there, Herod, in verse eight, when Herod saw Jesus, he was very glad for he had long desired to see him. Why? Because he had heard about him and he was hoping to see some sign done by him. Now, Herod's motive for seeing Jesus was not a godly motive. He's excited to meet Jesus because he's heard a lot about him. In fact, he's hoping to see Jesus do something, right? But as he questions Jesus, Jesus remains silent. He doesn't say a word to Herod, which I'm sure frustrates Herod. And after further accusations and mocking, Herod sends him back to Pilate. 
In fact, this is the, this is, this is the one thing that brought Herod and Pilate together. They, they were kind of at odds with each other. They didn't like each other, but now they've become friends, verse 12. But Herod sends him back, back to Pilate. So what happens here is Pilate calls the religious leaders back together and he reiterates the fact that neither he nor Herod find Jesus guilty. Two Roman rulers now saying, not guilty. He plans to release him. But, verse 18, they cried out together, away with this man. They continue their protest. They continue shouting, crucify, crucify him. The text says they were urgent, demanding with loud cries that he should be crucified. Then we find something quite amazing in verse 24. After he's announced not once, not twice, but three times that Jesus is not guilty, Look at verse 24. So Pilate decided that their demand should be granted. Pilate is ultimately swayed by the crowd and hands Jesus over. How could this have happened? I want you to see several things about this this spectacle of injustice. First of all, it's an injustice fueled by moral blindness. Brothers and sisters, I think this this narrative, obviously, as any other text in the Bible would be, is meant for our reflection, but particularly our reflection about the sinfulness of sin. The, The thing that really stands out about the way Jesus was betrayed and arrested and put on trial and mocked and accused, all of this is being driven by the religious faithful. Rome was not seeking to put Jesus to death. This was not a Roman agenda. This was a a religious agenda. In fact, three times the Roman leader says, Jesus is not guilty. Three times. They're determined to take Jesus down, so much so that they even fabricate lies about him. They, 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 they They don't take Pilate's response well, do they? No, they cry out louder. They're indignant. They're insistent that Jesus be executed. They exhibit a moral blindness that is shocking to us, isn't it? When you read that, this this it's shocking that they could be this bad. Brothers and sisters, it's a reminder to us that moral blindness shows us that sin knows no limits. There is nothing magical about consistent religious ritual that will keep you away from sin. These people would have been the most externally religious that you could they would probably make you and I look pretty bad as far as their outward external devotion to the things of God. It's a reminder to us that it's the heart that needs to be changed. You can't externally work your way out of sin. 
It's the human heart that has to be transformed by the grace of God. And you see here in the example of these chief priests and scribes and elders, the religious leaders of the day, these were the people that would have been defenders of the word of God, that they're the very ones that are morally blind and are falsely accusing Jesus. It's shocking to us. But friends, it should be a reminder of just how blinding sin can be. Not only that, it's an injustice fueled by indifference. We see lots of examples today of how injustice is perpetuated by indifference. And that's certainly the case here with Jesus. The trial and his pending death shows how the indifference of the people, but particularly of Pilate and Herod, push forward the evil agenda that the chief priest and the scribes and the elders had come together to seek. The religious leaders make these charges and accusations against Jesus and neither Pilate nor Herod really take them very seriously. Herod is just fascinated with Jesus. I wanna see a trick, right? He, he thinks he's some trickster. Pilate's, you, you read the other gospel accounts about th this scene and you get a full picture of who Pilate is and, and you could just see the the, the lack of concern that he has. He finds Jesus not guilty, but ultimately doesn't stand firm on that conclusion. So you have the fascinated and the indifferent here on display. And friends, is that not true of a lot of people today? They may be fascinated with Jesus, but at the end of the day, they're just indifferent. They may have heard about him, they may have thoughts about Jesus, but at the end of the day, they're indifferent. Luke is showing us the folly of indifference. It's tempting to read this text and have a strong reaction against the religious leadership because of their evil actions. And almost cultivating some low grade appreciation of Pilate and Herod thinking, well, at least, at least they, saw the truth about Jesus, that he wasn't guilty of these things. And you almost feel sorry for them if you're not careful. At least they tried, right? A for effort. But whether it's indifference or hardened opposition as seen in the religious leaders, all of them come together to condemn Jesus. What this shows us is that you do not have to have a hardened heart that is actively opposed to Jesus to stand against him. You can merely be indifferent and be no different than the, the hardened, the, the opposed. They're both in the same group, exhibiting it in different ways, exhibiting their, their hostility or their opposition or their rejection of Jesus differently. One angry, opposed, crying for his execution, the other indifference. Jesus' death makes no sense on, from a human perspective when the scales of justice are applied to this. And Pilate remains indifferent, Herod remains indifferent. The truth does not prevail. Friends, it's easy to see those who are actively opposed to the gospel, to Jesus. They stick out, right? 
They're loud. You know, you know them, you know their existence. But, but the danger is, is the, the, the danger, and the danger for maybe some of you in this room is, is, is being more like a pilot or a Herod who, who you have some fascination with Jesus or you have some interest in Jesus, but at the end of the day, your indifference does not lead you, your indifference leads you to resist what's true about Jesus and give way to popular opinion. Friends, let me just tell you this, the road to hell is paved with indifference. Be careful that you do not allow apathy and indifference to lead you, to lead you away from Christ. You see that on display here. Not only that, it's an injustice fueled by compromise. We see that in, in Pilate's case, Herod's case, specifically Pilate. I don't think we, we can move on without commenting on Pilate's, Pilate's last minute change of heart. From this text, we see how the court of public opinion can often overrule the official court. And really, it's the court of public opinion that has the final word in this trial, isn't it? Pilate gives way to the demands and cries of those demanding Jesus be crucified while releasing Barabbas, a guilty criminal. I want you to see that the difference between verse 22 and verse 24. Verse 22, I have found in him no guilt deserving of death. I will therefore punish and release him. That's verse 22. Verse 24, so Pilate decided that their demand should be granted. What, what, what changed between verse 22 and verse 24? Verse 23, and their voices prevailed. Pilate willingly sacrificed the truth to appease the crowd. He knew in his heart that Jesus was innocent, but that knowledge does not lead him to act because he's more concerned with the voices of the crowd than he is with the truth of who Jesus is. Brothers and sisters, there could be a whole sermon series on that one because that, that happens so often today. Pilate was not a believer but I think he stands as a warning to us. I think he stands as a, as a, as a clear warning for us because how often Christians today are being led captive by the court of public opinion. More Christians today being more influenced by political pundits than they are biblical imperatives. And before you get high and mighty, it happens on both the right and the left. Listen, if you find yourself absorbing more social media and news outlets than you do God's word, you're in a dangerous place. You're on the cusp of compromising what is true with what is voiced. 
doesn't matter what your political leaning is, doesn't matter what, what your thoughts are about this or that, you and I are being influenced in this world and we all need the humility to recognize that that is a fact. The trial of Jesus shows us clearly that when we forsake what is true for what is popular, we will end up with something very different than godliness. Compromising the truth leads to devastating consequences. This passage is here to teach us that the court of popular opinion is never to be trusted as a foundation for truth. It's a reminder to us that we need to depend upon God's word to instruct, inform, and shape our thinking. Because if it's not, something else will. Compromise. Compromise is deadly. And then lastly, as we look at this text, we see not only is it a spectacle of injustice, it's a moment of irony. A moment of irony. While the arrest and trial of Jesus was marked by injustice, we also have to realize and affirm that this was too, it was also part of God's sovereign plan. That also, that oftentimes cause, causes conflict in our brains. How can this be? Well, we know that Luke, not only did he write the gospel of Luke, he also wrote the book of Acts. And in Acts chapter four, he picks up on some events. He, he, he's recording some events about Peter and, and John after, the, after, the, after they're being released from prison, they're basically having a prayer meeting. And in the prayer meeting, the events of what we're reading about in Luke are the central focus of that prayer. And I want you to listen to what they pray. Acts chapter four, verse 23, when they were released, they went to their friends and reported what the chief priest and the elders had said to them. And when they heard it, they lifted their voices together to God and said, sovereign Lord who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them, who through the mouth of our father David, your servant said by the Holy Spirit, why did the Gentiles rage and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his anointed. For truly in this city, there were gathered together against your holy servant, Jesus, whom you anointed both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. Do you, do you see what, what Peter and John is? They're praying, they're, they're acknowledging both the human and the divine element to Jesus's trial and death. The, the irony in all of this was that while these evil men were scheming to have Jesus executed, they were ultimately accomplishing the plan of God to redeem sinners. So in verse 25, Pilate released the man Barabbas who had been thrown into prison for an insurrection and murder for whom they asked, but he delivered Jesus over to their will. Barabbas, a robber, 
Matthew calls him a notorious prisoner. Mark and Luke, a committed murderer in an insurrection. This was a bad dude. There was nothing, there was nothing good about Barabbas. Now, this Barabbas is released and Jesus is condemned. We never hear from Barabbas directly, but he's a very, very important figure in this narrative. Barabbas is important because he in a real sense is the story that explains Jesus. We could easily say that Barabbas' story is our story. So what do we have? We have in this account a guilty man, rightly condemned, being set free at the expense of the innocent one. What an illustration we have of the redemptive work that is accomplished in Christ. This great exchange that we often refer to, Paul referred to it in 2 Corinthians 5, 21, when he said, for our sake, he, God made him, Christ, to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. The righteous for the unrighteous. 1 Peter 3, verse 18, we read Peter saying, for Christ also suffered once for sins. Why? The righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God. Brothers and sisters, we are the guilty. We are the unrighteous who deserve death and judgment and hell, yet Jesus took upon himself the punishment and judgment we deserved. What we see here is this great act of injustice actually would result in the greatest act of justice the world has ever known. As Jesus is condemned in the place of the guilty. This is the gospel. This is the gospel. Where Jesus would be condemned and ultimately would hang on a cross as we saw last time, drinking the cup of God's wrath, taking upon himself justice and judgment and wrath that he never incurred on himself. Why? Because he was innocent. But he does it because he acts as a substitute, standing in our place, taking the condemnation we deserved, the innocent one taking upon himself the guilt and judgment of the guilty ones. I don't know the rest of Barabbas' story, but I do know what our story ought to be. As those who have been released from judgment, if you are in Christ, that is your story. If you are in Christ, you have been set free from judgment. You have been set free from the curse of sin. You have been released by the grace of God to experience the fullness of God. You've been set free from that, friend. And if we've been set free from the guilt and the wrath of God, should not our lives be lives of humility and 
gratefulness and faithfulness to the Lord. A sinless savior has died in your place. The innocent for the guilty. That is your story if you are in Christ. If you are in Christ, your story is Barabbas's story. You've been set free and you have no reason to be set free were it not for the grace of God. You, you may have, you know, sometimes we think through that. You may have difficult time accepting that reality from time to time. You may, you may just be reflecting upon your sin, upon who you are. You think about just life in a, in a broken and cursed world. It may be hard to, to rationalize in our brain, knowing who we are, that we stand before a holy God, that, that, that there's nothing we could ever do to earn his acceptance and favor. And it's hard for us from time to time to think that how could God send forth his son, innocent, not guilty of any crime or sin, so that he could come and die in our place. That can be difficult. Because of this debtor's ethic that we often struggle with, don't we? Feel like that we've, you ever, you ever given somebody, tried to give somebody a gift? And they're like, oh, no, 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 well, let me pay you for that. That's, I, think, that's, I think oftentimes our reflex to God. I can't accept that, it's free. Friend, it's free. Your freedom is free to you. It's free. It's costly for Christ, but he paid the price so that you could be free. So if you're not a Christian, this is your hope. If you're not a Christian, you're listening to this, just listen, Jesus, the innocent one, suffered the greatest act of injustice imaginable, came and he suffered for the guilty so that God's justice could be appeased in him. That friend is the gospel of Jesus Christ, good news for sinners. So the call to you would be, quit trying to attend your way into heaven. Quit trying to work your way into heaven. Quit trying to somehow make a deal with God. God's already made a deal. He sealed it upon a cross and guaranteed it through an empty tomb. If you would just simply turn from your sin and put your faith in Christ, that free gift is yours. I love what Isaiah could say the gospel according to Isaiah, that great chapter, chapter 53, we read part of it earlier. But doesn't Isaiah say all, hundreds, of, hundreds of years before any of this happened, isn't that exactly what he said would happen? In verse seven, speaking of the coming Messiah, he was oppressed, he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth like a lamb that is led to the slaughter and like a sheep before its shears is silent. So he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment, he was taken away as for his generation. Who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people? And they made his grave with the wicked and with the rich man in his death, although he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth. Do you see what Isaiah says? He was judged even though he was innocent. 
And then the next verse. Yet, it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring, he shall prolong his days, the will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, the innocent one, the righteous one, the servant, make many to be accounted righteous. Oh, brothers and sisters, wake up and listen to this. Not only did the innocent one die in your place, the innocent one clothes you in his innocence so that God, when he sees you as being in Christ, he sees you not only as covered by blood and cleansed from all your sin, he sees you clothed in righteousness so that you stand before God, not only forgiven, but complete in righteousness. Brothers and sisters, that's what God has done for you. Rejoice in that. Jesus was rejected so you and I could be accepted. That's what Luke 23 teaches us. The innocent one condemned so the guilty could be set free. Let's pray. Father, what glorious news. What glorious news we, we find in in your word, as you show us how good you are, how loving and gracious, merciful you are to love us this much, that you would allow your own son to endure all the hostility and anger that he endured, the unrighteousness that he endured so that we, the unrighteous, could be set free God, we are grateful. We are grateful this morning for what we've been given through Jesus. Lord, would you renew our affections and Lord, would you banish any sense of compromise, any sense of indifference, any sense of moral blindness from our hearts today that we would be able to see clearly the beauty and glory of Christ, the innocent one, condemned for guilty ones. God, that we would live lives of faithfulness and obedience unto you. And Lord, this is, this is news the world needs to hear. Our neighbors need it, our, our world needs it. So Lord, would you help us to leave here today rejoicing in what you've done for us, but not only for our sake, for the sake of the world. So Lord, would you help us to be faithful in proclaiming this good news. We are grateful for it. We pray in Christ's name, amen.